This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 80 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today our guest is one of the most beloved actors of our time, David Schwimmer. Schwimmer first made his name during the era of must-see TV on NBC's Friends, for which he received his first Emmy nomination 21 years ago. This year, for his work as Robert Kardashian on FX's The People vs. O.J. Simpson, he is nominated again, this time in the category of Best Supporting Actor in a Limited Series or TV Movie. The 49-year-old got his start in the theater of Chicago and only began coming out to L.A. out of a need to make a more substantial living. For seven years, he was a struggling actor, scraping out a living as a waiter and in bit parts on TV series. But when a former collaborator wrote the role of Ross Geller on the show that would become Friends, his life changed forever. For ten years, Friends was one of the most popular series on television, attracting, at its height, 52 million viewers. While Friends' success put Schwimmer on the map, it also left him typecast, and for years thereafter he struggled to be seen as anyone else even while appearing in a number of high-profile films and, most famously, the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. Even while on Friends, he anticipated that this might be a problem and began to take matters into his own hands by directing ten episodes of Friends and then, after Friends, a number of independent films. Over the course of our conversation, he talks about what drew him to acting in the first place, what it was like when he very suddenly became a celebrity, how he's always tried to keep his focus on art rather than anything else, perhaps best illustrated by why he turned down the part in Men in Black that ultimately went to Will Smith, and of course a lot about playing the patriarch of the Kardashian family in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Robert Kardashian, who died in 2003, is today best known as the father of modern celebrity. His kids are famously Kim, Courtney, Chloe, and Rob. But in his lifetime, he was the most famous Kardashian, rising to prominence at the same time that Schwimmer was. Schwimmer talks about how he came to understand the man that Kardashian was and the dilemma that he faced at that time, not least of all through lengthy conversations with his widow, Kris Jenner. We get into all this and much more, so I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Let's go to it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. David, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. To begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Right. Uh, I was born in New York, in Flushing, Queens, but really raised all over Los Angeles. My parents are New Yorkers, but when I was around two, they, they both were lucky enough to receive job offers as very young attorneys here in California. So they picked up and moved us. My sister and I have one older sister, a year, we're a year apart, and moved to L.A. Actually, we ended up in Tarzana first, yeah. and uh, grew up really all, all over the L.A. County uh, era. Now, area. was it just being around the business that enticed you to be curious about acting, or was it something else? I think my mom, my mom always had the acting bug in her. When she was a young woman and a, and a girl, she, in, growing up in New York, she was... You know, her idols, you know, were like Elizabeth Taylor. And, and But for her family, her father said that's just not an option. So she was always a frustrated kind of theater person. Right. And that's why she ended up, I think, on stage in court, <laughs> you know. But growing up, they would take us all the time to the theater. So I grew up, every time we would go back to New York to visit family, they'd pack in like a five-day trip, they'd pack like seven shows. Wow. So I always grew up going to the theater, and I think that's that I got the bug, you know, I think very early on. I read something about a Ian McKellen performance or class that you saw when you were 13 that was pretty yeah. important to you. Yeah, that was here. Uh, he was doing this one-man Shakespeare show I think it was called Acting Shakespeare. I think I was, yeah, 13 when my parents took me to UCLA, like the small theater there at, at UCLA. And I remember watching him do this one-man show where he, in front of your eyes, with no props, no costume change, nothing, he just transformed himself into 25 of the greatest you know, characters from Shakespeare's plays. Male, female, you know, from Falstaff, who weighs 300 pounds, to Puck. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> It was phenomenal, and I thought, wow, that was like the coolest magic act I've ever seen, <laughs> and I just wanted to learn how to do it. And so you go off to high school and got very into it, and was there some consideration of not even going to college and just going right after to pursue? Well, yeah. I mean, I my parents, that wasn't an option for me. I mean, not going to college was not an option. They, they said... You know, they were very supportive of me acting, directing, even in high school. But they said, you know, that you're, you're going to get a, a quote-unquote real education <laughs> first. <laughs> so, in fact, when I was a senior in high school, I ended up going to Beverly High yeah. here with Johnny Silverman, okay. who's a good buddy of mine. Yeah. And we were both submitted by our acting teacher for Brighton Beach Memoirs on Broadway. And we were the only two that, you know, our acting teacher put forward. They came to cast the play from New York. And my parents said, no, you can't go. Because I mean, <laughs> it would have just interrupted the... Uh, yeah, they said, you're not going to Broadway, you're going to college. Was that a and bummer? And I was always, 
At the time, yeah. yeah. Well, Johnny got it, yeah. and he made his Broadway debut, and I was, uh, you know, there were years I was like, oh, wow, right. watching his career right, and, right. and going, wow, that's, that's amazing, and very happy for him. You know, right. he was wonderful. I saw him in the play. He was amazing. But then, having gone through the process at Northwestern and having fallen in love with that education that I received there and all the folks that I ended up making, creating a theater company with, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So. so that theater company was sort of the, this is Looking Glass, was the bridge between college and then what you did in the immediate years right after that? Yeah, I guess Looking Glass has really been the most stable kind of home, artistic home for me. We're now approaching our 30th season as a company, and I keep acting, you know, directing, producing with them. This is out of Chicago? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're in Chicago. And those were the folks that kept my head straight in a way. My parents too, but, you know, having those peers that kind of, the crazy roller coaster that this business is, you know, they're the ones that always kept me in check and and was truly an artistic home, a, a place of real creativity and ensemble and community. And there's no ego there. There's just, it's all about the work. So as a guy who clearly grew up loving theater and continues to love theater, how did you wind up on a screen acting trajectory at first? Growing up, I had a lot of pressure from my parents to be successful mm-hmm. and to make a good living. And I recognized that the odds of doing that, doing theater, you know, not-for-profit theater in Chicago, were not as were not great. And so we had just started the theater company and formed it kind of, you know, we'd been directing each other in plays and at school. But in our senior year, we said, right, we're doing this for real. We're starting an official company. We got our 501c3 status, you know. And then there was a senior showcase where they invited managers and agents from New York and L.A. to come watch the senior talent pool. And we all did scenes, you know. I did a a scene from this Tom Stoppard play, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And a manager from L.A. came up to me, approached me, and says, you know, basically, I'm going to make you a star. <laughs> you know, one of those. Right. And I was like, well, I'm kind of, I just started this theater company. You know, how realistic is this? Now, mind you, I was incredibly naive, and I thought, I believed her when she said, you know, I would make a very good living very quickly. Right. So I said to my company, I said, look, I'm going to go out to L.A., Give me, you know, give me eight months. I'm going to make a million dollars. I'm going to bring it back to Chicago, and we're going to have the seed money to build our own theater. Like, this was how, like, naive and also full of myself, honestly, I was. I was that confident. Because when we were graduating, we were kind of the shit. You know, we were like, we were the seniors. We were doing all the great play, you know. So I really thought, well, this is going to happen easily. Of course it didn't. I did come out to L.A. with her. And while she's, she was not my manager for very long, she did introduce me to my agent of 26 years wow, now, wow. Leslie Siebert at yeah. Gersh, and who's a dear friend. And so that was like a great thing. I did get one job in the, in the eight months I was here, but I was so frustrated and discouraged by all the auditions and no, and not landing except for one role, landing anything. And so disappointed and jealous of all my friends who were putting on plays already the company was up and running that I moved back to Chicago for two years and I asked my agent I asked Leslie will you still rep me right will you still send me out you know in Chicago she goes no is there even anything to be sent out for especially back then you know there really wasn't a market and she goes no but if you ever come back to LA I'm here 
and that began this relationship where I would come out for like a year at a time and then go back to Chicago and do theater and back and forth and back and forth and somehow managed to juggle both. So, so when you did come back out here, what were those early years like? I think people, because you were new to a lot of viewers when they saw Friends, they assumed that this was your first thing. But in mm-hmm. fact, there had been like seven or so years of struggle before that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was waiting tables. I opened every daily grill in the city, I think, here, <laughs> starting with right. one in San Vicente, on right. San Vicente in Brentwood. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I waited tables. Uh, it was a great job because I would get a lot of little guest star parts. I would do a couple of episodes on the Wonder Years where you'd work for a week and then you'd not work for two months. And then they'd say, um, can he do another you know, I go, yeah. And the managers at the Daily Grill would always be very flexible awesome. and work around actor schedules, which was smart. You know, you never made enough to quit waiting tables for seven years, even though I did L.A. Law. I did The Wonder Years. I did NYPD Blue. I did, you know, Blossom. I, I did, did all these right, right. shows. So the first time you were on TV really was The Wonder Years, right? Like in a re- in a major yeah. program. Yeah, yeah. And where did you see yourself on I TV? I was... I w- okay, so at the Beverly Connection right. on La on Cienica, there used to be a Daily Grill there. Right. And I had opened that restaurant, and I was working at the Daily Grill there where at the bar, they had a TV in the bar, and the first time I was on <laughs> The Wonder Years, the, my buddy at the bar, who was working the bar yeah. said, Schwimmer, you're on TV. <laughs> so I'm waiting tables and catching myself you know, <laughs> on the TV for the first time. I'm like... And then back to, uh, hey, do you want blue cheese or Thousand Island? <laughs> you know, so it was just a great, you know, it was kind of surreal. It right? was just an LA moment. So, how did you first hear about Friends, or as I believe it was called at that time, in Insomnia Cafe? What was the first time it crossed your path? Well, so Johnny yeah. Silverman and I have this great kind of history. So a year prior to Friends, he and I were the final among the final three guys for a show that Marta Kaufman and David Crane had written and created called, um, I think it was called Couples, or, and Johnny got it. Johnny got this pilot, and they shot the pilot, and for whatever reason, it wasn't picked up. That's like most pilots. But apparently, David and Marta remembered my audition, my, you know, the guy I had created for that, or my voice. And so a year later... I was in Chicago doing a play with Looking Glass. I was playing Pontius Pilate in The Master and Margarita, our own adaptation right. at the Steppenwolf studio. And and I get the call that from my agent that they were offering me this part on this new show called Friends. Now, I had just had a terrible experience on a different show in between. And I thought, and I swore off television. I, I was just not going to do TV again because I didn't. I didn't have a voice. I didn't feel like the writers on that other show I was doing. They, they were placating me. They they were treating me like a child. They were like, I would have some ideas like, hey, what if I did this or what? If, what if my character, you know, I came in like, and they were like, yeah, yeah, no, huh, yeah, and nothing. <laughs> they would never incorporate any ideas. Right. I was like, this is miserable. Yeah. This isn't collaborative, and. I was looking at six years of it. You know, you signed, or at that time, five years, you signed a contract, and I was not happy. So I told my agent, forget it, Uh, just don't send me any more television. And But then she told me that they had, these are the same writers who I had auditioned for a year prior, that they wrote this with me in mind, 
this character and would I please, you know, come out and meet with them. And still, I was like, the idea of committing to five years, I was just not up for it. Especially, I was so happy in Chicago doing, you know, having that flexibility, that freedom of my schedule. Then they got Robbie Benson to call me, who was a friend of theirs. And at, at the time, you know, I knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And I was I was no one. You know, I was just like, oh, my God, Robbie Benson's <laughs> calling me. And then they, then they had Jim Burroughs call right. me. Yeah. And I, Jim Burroughs, all of Cheers, Taxi, Great everything, terrific. like heroes yeah. Yeah. of mine. And I was like, well, of course I'm going to come out and meet with everyone. Right. With the, I'm not going to be a dick. <laughs> and then they said that, listen, in, in meeting with me, they said, this is a really, it's an ensemble show. The six of you are equals. You know, there's no star. There's no, we're going to, it's going to be collaborative. And they said everything that I thought, well, this was worth the gamble and they kept saying the word ensemble, which my 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 agent must have told them right. to say, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't know any of the other cast. You know, I had not met any of them. I knew who Courtney was, right. of course. And that was that, you know. And then I said, well, yeah, let's let's go for it. It's only a pilot. You know, I thought, I mean, who who knows what's going to happen? And then... And how quickly it got picked up. And it was, I mean, what I remember is that it was popular from from the get-go but i guess for you you're going through your was there even a, a anxious wait for the pilot or you didn't really care either way right it sounds like no at that point i was i was invested mm-hmm. as as anyone i think i mean we felt like there was something special here you know we felt after we shot the show we felt wow so what a great group of people and we all kind of uh the casting was so you know i think when you you're in that situation you recognize how special it is that these six pieces of a puzzle kind of fit really well together. So we were, I think we were, everyone was really hoping it would go. I was at that point, yeah. certainly. How quickly did the show's success change your life? I mean, the idea that you were pretty quickly now a big celebrity, it, it must have been a big life change for you, and maybe not necessarily all for the better. Yeah, that's right. It was huge. You know, it was huge huge life-changing event luckily the six of us were going through it together because it was it was really terrifying at times of course really thrilling and exciting and fun but for me personally it was pretty jarring and it messed with my relationship to other people in in a way that took years I think for me to kind of um, adjust to and be comfortable with because I didn't you know I was 27 when the, when the show hit, so I already I had a pretty solid understanding of who I was and my relationship to the world. And you know, as an actor, the way I was trained, my job was to observe life and to observe other people. And so I used to walk around kind of with my head up and really engaged in watching people. And then the effect of celebrity was the absolute opposite. It made me want to hide under a baseball cap, not be seen. And I realized after a while that I was no longer watching people. I was trying to hide. So I, I was trying to figure out, okay, how do, I, how do I be an actor in this new world, in this new situation? How do I do my job? And so that was tricky. Is there a solution to that? Because it does seem like if you're not able to observe people, to continue to observe the way people behave naturally, how do you continue to advance as an actor? I think you just develop other other processes. I still observe, but in different ways. And what was the strangest thing was how I didn't feel I had changed 
obviously I, I have changed and everyone changes when you go through that. But like who I was, my essence, I didn't feel like my character had changed, but suddenly people were treating me in a very, very different way that sometimes was flattering, but mostly very invasive. I mean, I was a very private person. I, I enjoyed, you know, I still enjoy like just going to the supermarket and do it, like being a member of society, you know, being, you know, living a regular life. But when people start coming up to you and grabbing you or wanting something for you, or now, of course, it's even worse where you're always on camera, people sneaking, thinking they're being sneaky by videotaping you when you're online at Starbucks or whatever. I mean, it's like, really, this is the world now. It, it just changes how you relate to people or it can change how you relate to people. What is it about television where that seems to be even more heightened than with theater or film? When somebody, when an actor is part of something that is very popular, it not only makes people feel they have a real relationship with that person, but also that... They have permission to approach. You know, there's something very, because you're in their home, there's something very approachable about actors on television. I think that's... Especially in a in a comedy, a half hour comedy, where there's something very comforting about it, and the show itself was a comfort kind of a show. It was a feel good show for the most part, I think. And for some people, you know, you lived with us for ten years, you know, and and so we are part of the family in a way. So I think there is a feeling of of like, oh, you're oh, you're you know, we're friends, you know, where well, you know we there's there's less of a barrier, I think, than than say a, a big movie star that you go to the theater and you see them in this other kind of a space with a lot of other people on a big screen and and you see that their role changes in every movie for the most part right. you know they're very different people in very different situations whereas in our show I'm the same guy for 10 years you can rely on me to be a certain way and and you know me you know so I think that's a different or you think you know me <laughs> right. you know, so. now you kind of recognize that I think early on because almost I think as a way of perhaps guarding against that you would not go on vacation during your breaks from friends you would go and do films or TV movies or other things miniseries that were generally as far from Ross as anything could be right was that a conscious decision to to present a different persona so that people realized you weren't just this one persona you know I- I'd say at, at sometimes it was about trying to achieve something career-wise, mm-hmm. and at other times it was just for my own artistic survival. Yeah. So I can have the challenge of and, and the satisfaction and fulfillment of playing a different person. Because when you play someone for the same character for so long, it can become a trap and you can... It, it would be very easy to stop challenging yourself and stop growing. But it was always very important to me to keep growing and challenging myself, uh, doing theater, TV, film, directing, yeah. doing whatever it is to keep, you know, stretching muscles and, and you know, working out different parts. Was it a concern, though, that you would potentially be, I don't know if typecast is even the right word, but just no, seen that's as... The right, a, that's the right word. You know, I was, I was very aware of uh, the power of the success of the show. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I had been doing a lot of different roles for years. But as far as the the industry and the 
you know, the population at large knew my first job was on right. Friends. That was it. That was who I was. And that's all I, you know, so and I recognized that and I understood it. But I felt like it was part of my goal was to eventually in the long run, you know, like play the long game, yeah. you know, <laughs> just yeah. like, well, look, I'm hopefully going to be doing this for 40 or 50 more years. You know, that was back yeah. back 20 years ago yeah. when we did the Friends, um, when we did the show. Well, people are living longer. I'm just, so. <laughs> I'm just going to play the long game and, you know, hopefully I'll change some people's minds and others will just see Ross, like, in in World War Two right. and Band of Brothers. It was just Ross. And, right. And Ross, angry Brothers. Ross. Yeah. Like, yeah, Red Ross, right. as they say. To your point about playing the long game, some things you read are, are BS, so you can please correct this if this is wrong, but I was impressed by the fact that in order to do your first leading role in a film during one of these breaks from Friends, and the, the movie was The Paul Bearer with Gwyneth Paltrow, you turned down another movie, right? That could have been a, a much bigger payday, a bigger scale of a movie, right? Um, you're talking about Men in Black? Yes. So the deal with it was, so I had shot The Paul Bearer for Miramax, and they had very high hopes for it. And while we were shooting it, they wanted to lock me into a three-picture deal. And as we all know now, the movie did not do well, so <laughs> I didn't end up doing that three-picture right. deal with Miramax. But at the time, I had a little leverage, and so and I'd always wanted to direct. So I had said, okay, look, I'll sign for a three-picture deal if you let me direct my first film and cast my entire theater company in Chicago. Oh, wow. So that was my goal to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give to bring everyone up with me, you know, to give everyone a shot. It's like Orson Welles with his Mercury. Well, that's what I was trying to do. And I did it. I negotiated the deal. We did it. And the next year, it was set to go into production in Chicago. And it it was called Dogwater. Now it's called Since You've Been Gone. But I shot my first film, and the entire theater company is in it. And some crazy cameos like John Stewart, Liev Schreiber, like all these like all these people. But at the time. So I had told everyone in the theater company, you're all cast, here are your roles, you know, don't take any other jobs for this six-week period. So everyone turned down all these other opportunities, teaching jobs, other plays, you know, everyone was banking on doing this first film with me. And then about a month before, so we're in pre-production, about a month before production, I get the call about Men in Black, which was a direct conflict with doing, directing that film. And I just said, I, I can't. Wow. These are my closest friends in the world. This is their first shot at a movie, my first shot at directing. I can't push, because i got to go back to work on Friends in the fall. Right. So I'm like, ah. And that's, the, that's what ended up happening. That's what ended up happening. That so, is a very honorable thing to do. That's amazing. I, it it yeah. wasn't even like a choice. Yeah, really. yeah. It was not, I was like, I can't, I just can't. Wow. Well, um, Will Smith owes you a big well, favor. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so directing, though, clearly seemed to be something you liked because then you ended up, when all was said and done, doing, I think, directing 10 episodes of Friends yeah. as well. W- what did you do to prepare to do that? Was there working with Burroughs and these guys to yeah. learn? I shadowed Burroughs, who was a great mentor, as was Kevin Bright, who directed many, many uh-huh. episodes of Friends. You know, I just I tried to shadow and learn from everyone. And when I was when we had a guest director like Gail Mancuso or whatever, whoever come in, I would, even though I was acting, and I would be watching and studying what they were doing as a director. And but and then I would shadow Burroughs. I'd go watch him 
direct Will and Grace and other shows. Yeah, and then Kevin and Martin and David were generous enough to, when I went to them, I said, look, I'd really like to try one of these. Can I, you know, can I try it? Mm-hmm. And they, and I knew that there was such a supportive crew and I knew everyone. I knew it was the perfect way to, yeah. you know, try my hand at it. And Kevin said, you know, they, they all were like, yes. And Kevin was going to have, have my back because he was the main director on the show. But then I went to the cast and I asked, is this okay? <laughs> you know, that you know was yeah. that all right if I direct you guys? And, and luckily we all, you know, they were all up for it. Right. So, so I guess Friends ends 2004, 2005. That sounds right. Yeah. So then by 2007, you were directing your first feature film, Run Fat Boy Run. Well... I have to say, like, my first feature was actually that Miramax well, one, one with Mar- my company. It just, they, Did they, they intentionally, I, well, they, they, didn't re- they didn't release it theatrically. Yeah. They released, they sold it off to ABC. I think it, it aired on ABC as a TV movie. Gotcha. But that was my first feature. So now, the, yeah, so, so this is the first one that's going to be in theaters, the theatrical, proper theatrical. Run movie, Fat Boy Run. Run, Run Fat Boy yeah, Run. Yeah, yeah. So three years after that, it was Trust. Right. Trust was the more personal one. Run, Fat Boy, Run, I thought... First of all, Simon and I were friends. I thought yeah. this was a great, fun, fun movie. Yeah. Get to shoot in London for, you know, three months. Hank yeah. Azaria, Tandy Newton. Right. I mean, this was going to be a blast. Yeah. And I felt like it, it had a shot at being a commercial uh, romantic comedy. And it was, it was a huge success in, Lo- in the UK. It was the number one movie for a while. And then they tried to open it up here. <laughs> and it, it didn't do as well in the States. <laughs> But then Trust was a few years later, and that yeah. was a more personal... And that, I, I remember, when it premiered at Toronto, I think, Toronto International Film Festival, and it was a very thought-provoking, I think, well-received movie. For you, was that, A, the subject matter was personal, but B, the fact that it was received by the industry in a, in a pretty positive way, was that very encouraging for you? Well, yes and no. I mean, I knew, I knew going into it that the subject matter, you know, was the... <laughs> the grooming and subsequent rape of a 14-year-old girl. So I, I knew it wasn't going to be a big commercial right, hit, right, right. but I did hope that it would receive enough critical attention that that more people would see it. My whole goal was you know, for people to see it. Yeah. That's any filmmaker's hope, especially with a, a movie of this kind of subject matter. So I, I still wish more people had seen it, but it never kind of... You know, it never, it's so hard for these kind of dark independent dramas to kind of break through. And unless they're receiving big award kind of notices, and the lead actress, Liana Liberato, did receive like a a great award, but not enough. She and Clive Owen did not receive, I think, the kind of the attention they deserved for their performances. And so it never kind of broke through a certain certain thing. So, any truth to the fact that you had considered subverting this idea that if there are a chunk of people out there who look at you and they see nice guy Ross, why not subvert that and you be the the bad guy in this movie? Yeah, I had considered playing the uh, the sexual predator in it, but ultimately I, there was so much pressure. It was such we had so little money on that movie, and there was so much pressure for me as producer and director just to get the movie made and to do it right. That ultimately, I thought, you know what, I'm not. I just I need all my attention and focus on this side of camera. Yeah. You know, so I uh, I cast someone else in that role, a great actor, Chris Coffey. Yeah. So. 
So over the last few years, you have not done a lot of television. And I wonder, was that a, you know, when, when we do see you on TV, like a curb or something, it's terrific. But was there a conscious decision, I'm not going to do another series until I'm 150% sure that I want to be involved with that again, with, with the time commitment that you were referring to earlier? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I just really enjoy the flexibility of a schedule where I I, I know that, a big chunk of my year will be free for me to do theater or to, you know, to do whatever. And so I was very resistant to that. I also wanted to focus on directing. I, I made a conscious decision to start a different kind of chapter of my life, which was marriage, family. And I, I wanted to really enjoy and be present for that more than be off, you know, on location somewhere or being just frankly working so much. So 2016, though, has been a pretty exciting year, I would imagine. In fact, the way one journalist at a different outlet put it, after the reconnaissance and the reasoning, the schwimmissance is finally here between People vs. O.J. Simpson and also your new AMC series. So let's, if we can, zero in on People vs. O.J. because, first of all, congratulations, and second, Emmy nomination. Is it sweeter 21 years after the first? Did you appreciate, did it seem like a big deal with the first one? It definitely felt yeah. like a big deal with the first one. I don't know if it's sweeter the 21 years later, yeah. but it, it certainly is different, different kind of right. m- meaning to it. So how did you first hear about this limited series and did you immediately know that you wanted in? Because I don't know that it would have been obvious that it would have the kind of phenomenal success that it's had. My my agent Leslie told me that Ryan had reached out about you know my interest in in playing the part and I've been a huge fan of Ryan's for you know for many years never worked with him but I wanted to I had no idea who the guy was you know I remembered you know Robert I, Kardashian, I, yeah, yeah. I rem- you know Robert Kardashian I remembered who he was but I didn't know anything about him so luckily they sent me the first two scripts to read. And also, I was naturally kind of cautious because tone is so tricky, and I didn't want it to be, you know, at all salacious or irresponsible in some way. You know, there was a, a thing about taste yeah. that you don't know going into something. But then you look at everyone involved. You look at Ryan. You look at Nina Jacobson, and the writers and the other producers, Brad, and and like the whole. The whole package seems like, well, this is going to be kind of first class, you know. So I read the scripts and then I had a conversation with Nina and Ryan, a Skype. And Ryan said some really fascinating things to me. And, and one thing that he mentioned when talking about tone was that he was, he was going for something like the movie Network. Yeah. And, and that, that more than anything really landed with me. And I thought, wow, if... If you could pull that off, if he can pull it off so that people had permission to laugh at certain moments because some of it was just crazy yeah. and absurd right. what was happening, but laugh in a dark way, in a way that that was conscious of the kind of significance, the social and I don't know, the the significance of the events looking through the lens of 20 years later, how have things changed? in terms of race and class in America. And I thought when I read it, I thought, wow, this is an opportunity to 
to engage in some way and contribute to the conversation we're having nationally about those things. So, you know, and then we talked a lot about what is the arc of the character and and I wanted to make sure I knew, I understood over 10 episodes where right. the guy was going right. and was there a real story there to Robert? And we discovered there was. So so when you look back when this all was actually going down 21, 22 years ago, it is kind of amazing because it almost exactly coincides with when you were dealing with the rise of Friends. It was just starting at the yeah, same no, time. it was the same year. Yeah, so for yeah. you at that time, were you able to really follow the story as it was happening or was this kind of a process of discovery for you all these years later well both i mean we were all working that first year on the show very aware of what was happening with this trial you know we were here we lived in la so we am working in la and courtney since has reminded me that she was fairly obsessed with the trial at the time so anytime between rehearsal or break from you know uh, the soundstage you know in her dressing room she'd right. have the trial going or whatever so we were all very aware of, you know, the climate of L.A. at the time was a very, it was very tense. You know, the city was was reeling from this racial divide and police brutality uh, with certain, you know, widely publicized incidents yeah. like the Rodney King beating. You know, the climate in the city was, was already hot. And then this this trial just kind of, you know, heightened everything yeah. and really magnified, you know, the idea of celebrity and race and class and domestic violence for, the, you know, for the first time in a while. So the for you in going back and trying to understand him specifically, what were the most valuable resources that you had? Because unfortunately, you couldn't go and call him up. Right. You know, there was there was some stuff online that I could find and research, and of course the um, the writers and the whole writing staff on the show and Ryan they had done plenty of research, so they supplied me with what they had found, some video footage. You know, watching him at the pre- that initial press conference where he read the suicide note, and then later the Barbara Walters interview after you know post trial and everything. So there were things I could observe, but you know that's a very pu- public persona that right. you're receiving so you don't really know who the guy is and the the single most helpful thing was speaking to Chris Jenner for a couple of hours on the phone she was very generous with her time and obviously still has a lot of love for him uh, in her heart and spoke very highly of him and really really f- clued me in about who the guy was as a father as a family man that he was funny and silly and He was a very religious man and had his own Bible, prayed at every meal before big meetings. And that there were a couple of clues that she she gave me into um, trying to figure out who he was and helped me as an actor rationalize and understand why he was making the decisions he was making at the time. So in the world of the limited series, would you agree with the idea that he sort of seems to me almost the conscience of the story he has he's the one guy that has nothing to gain from the outcome and that's right and and so i wonder for you is there is there a scene that you know the scene that to me seemed to encapsulate his part of his attitude was at the i think it was the chinese restaurant where he takes the kids and it's all about you know no special treatment well i think i think he says a couple of things in that scene that i mean he was 
at least my take on him, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, obviously I, I never met the man, but he seemed to be a more modest and private person and was a man of certain principles and morals that he wanted to impart to his kids. And I don't know how comfortable he was with the sudden celebrity that was thrust upon him. When you're hanging out with someone like who was as big a celebrity as O.J., and Robert had known him for many years and really saw just the effect, the magnetism that, that O.J. had as a, young, as a young man and a celebrity, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're in the glow of that. And so, you know, they hung out a lot. They went, so if you, if you think about how much Robert, how close he was to celebrity for how long, and then suddenly it's turned on him, I think he, he, li- he was able to live for a long time just basking in the glow, but not having to deal with the harsh light of celebrity. And suddenly he realized in that scene that you were talking about, uh-oh, the spotlight suddenly swung and now it's hit him. And I don't know, I, there was a moment, I, at least the way I interpret that scene, of he was almost speaking to himself. Mm-hmm. It's like, keep yourself in check, remember who you are, where you come from, don't let this go to your head. Even though he's talking to his kids, he's really talking to himself, I thought. And then another big moment I would imagine to perform was when he finally comes to terms with the fact that this is not this guy is not what he thought he was, and he's there with Chris in the kitchen, I guess. I mean, was that plays very powerfully? Was it a powerful scene to do? Yeah, yeah, it was. Look, I mean, my, my whole take on him was about faith, his faith in his God, that his faith in his choices, his faith in his friendship and his friend. And it wasn't for him to judge, you know, that, you know, philosophically, that and you can hate the sin, but never the sinner, right, basically, right, right. right? So it's not for him to judge. But I think there came a point in time when he realized that he was possibly complicit. Like, if, if this man, who he had always regarded as a dear friend and what really believed was innocent at, a, at, at some point in time, if he isn't innocent, then he, Robert, has been complicit in the outcome. And I think that, I think everything came into question for him. He had a crisis of faith in, in his friendship, in his God, and everything. And that's why I think that scene and some of those scenes, at least our take on it as writers, as cre- you know, as creators, actor Ryan, the director, Anthony, the other director, um, like that's what we were going for and trying to shape his, his arc. Yeah. So final question, based on your experience doing this project and the way it's been received. Do you feel that this has reminded yourself or others that, you know, in case anybody might have forgotten, I can do a lot of different things. How would you like people to come away from this thinking about David Schwimmer today? Oh, I don't really think about about that that much. I mean, look, I'm, I'm very realistic about this career that... I've chosen and uh, the industry and look the fact that it's 21 year gap between uh, nominations I'm completely grateful very grateful even more so you know because it's you can really look at a whole career now in this industry that's hopefully I'm I'm in the midpoint of but I, I think look it's it's great to be nominated obviously it, it helps uh, my agent um, it helps me I think maybe open the door to future roles. But the bottom line is, I'm just, I'm just really 
thrilled to be a part of that particular show. I'm really proud of what they accomplished. I feel I had a very small part in in this big company of people, a huge company of people that that actually created a show that became a water cooler show for which is so hard to do today. Yeah, it's, not, <laughs> you know? it's not like when Friends was on the air. Exactly. Right? Like Friends and some other shows were water cooler yeah. shows, you know, but to do that today when when there's so many different kinds of ways to watch, you know, to right. watch and, and to consume um, television, I, th- I thought was a remarkable achievement. And I think they did it really well. And I'm just proud to be a part of it, really. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks.